CNN. Radio. This is CNN Profiles. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. Today's show is designed to help us all get a deeper understanding of what we do for a living. Think about how you would answer this question that our guest posed to thousands of Americans. How much of your time do you spend trying to get other people to give you something in exchange for something you have? In other words, how much of your time do you spend selling? One out of nine American workers officially has a job in sales. But here's what our guest found. People are spending 40% of their time on the job persuading, influencing, convincing, this thing that is akin to sales. That's a lot of time. 40% is 24 minutes per hour. Joining us to explain how to sell better is Daniel Pink, author of the new book titled To Sell is Human, The Surprising Truth About Moving Others. And for the mothers and fathers in the audience, if you listen to this whole interview, you will find out how great salesmanship can help you be a more persuasive parent. Daniel, welcome to CNN Profiles. Michael, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Daniel, you define salesmanship a little differently from what I'm used to defining it as. T tell us what selling is. We tend to think of sales as slippery, slimy, smarmy, sleazy, lowbrow. It has very, very bad associations. And that's perfectly understandable. But my view is that those associations with sales, that it's about hoodwinkery, deception, deceit, uh, being slimy, being disingenuous, that that view of sales is really about the conditions in which sales have long taken place rather than about the nature of sales itself. And this goes precisely to this point that we're talking about. Most of what we know about sales, whether it is pushing Buicks on a car lot, peddling ideas in a meeting, is from a world of information asymmetry, where the seller always had more information than the buyer. When the seller has more information than the buyer, the seller can rip you off. It, cars are a fantastic example of this. You go 20 years ago, you went to a Chevy dealer. The Chevy dealer knew a lot more about cars, certainly a lot more about Chevys than you ever could. Now, when you go into a Chevy dealer, you, as the customer, you might actually know more about Chevys than that particular salesperson. That is, you can go online and compare prices. You can go to user groups and find out who, you know, the user group for Chevy Malibu owners. Um, I interviewed a car sales uh, woman who runs a big car dealership in Washington, D.C., who said that when she started in sales, the factory invoice price of cars was locked in the safe. They wouldn't even let the salespeople see them. Now, you and I can go into a car dealership clutching the factory invoice price of the car. And so in a world of most of what we know about sales and the reason we think it's slimy is because there was an information, a massive information imbalance. Today, that information imbalance has been not fully eradicated, but it's something close to information parity. And so we've moved to, in a very curious way in the last 10 years from a world of caveat emptor, buyer beware. We got to beware. I ha if I'm a buyer and you have a lot more information than me, I'm on guard. But at the same time, we have caveat vendator, seller beware. Now, sellers have to beware. It's harder to take the low road. It's harder to be the slimy, slippery, smarmy, sleazy kind of guy because you get found out and people can announce it to all of their networks very quickly. And so the catalytic ideas in this book are really rooted in, I think, pretty substantial um, uh, evidence that, like it or not, we're all in sales now, but sales isn't what it used to be. 
And, and just to, to expand on that a little bit, uh, you've actually changed my perspective reading this book because I went into my cell phone provider the other day. I thought my bills were a little high. I just wanted to sort of value engineer them, see if I could do anything. And the salesman there did something that I had never been aware of before, it probably happened before. He turned the computer screen towards me. So Interesting. we both look at all of my personal data, all of my usage, and together we came up with a plan and it was very transparent. I still had that caveat emptor attitude, but it was all which is there. Which is not and a bad idea. Yeah, and copyright emptor is still good, but but there you go. That's a that's a beautiful illustration of it. That is the that is the picture literally of information uh, parity, where you both have access to the information, and and that changes what the that changes what the person does. If you if you're seeing right through to your own behavior and you're seeing the data of your usage, he or she can't say to you, oh, you know, can't. It's much harder for that person to fake you out. That person has to come and try to understand you, understand where you're coming from. In this case, understand your usage problem, uses, not your usage problems, but your usage patterns, and then um, try to fashion a, an offering that's right for you. This is CNN Profiles. So we're listening to Daniel Pink, author of uh, the new book, To Sell is Human, about the role of sales in all our lives right now and, and how we are salespeople. But you know what? I had asked you a different question, and I'm so hyper aware as a result of my language, as a result of reading your book, that even when I use the word but now, I try to stop myself because you have a whole <laughs> section. Well, you got, you got, you, and you know what I'm referring to, you have a whole section on the art of improv, the art of improvisation, and how important that is in making people move in the direction you want them to move. Tell me about the art of improv because you're never supposed to say but in improv, right? That's exactly right. We have this notion. See, there, there are a lot of, and I'm glad you focused on the, on the, on the language because I, if you do, you realize that how much we're prisoners of a certain kind of language when it comes to this, this world. You, you even hear certain salespeople talk about attacking, um, about uh, hunting, uh, as, if the, as if they're predators and the customer is prey. That's possible in an old world. Nobody is going to be prey. Very few people, at least, are going to be, relatively few people are going to be prey in this world. And so this goes to the idea, one of the things that any salesperson learns eventually is overcoming objections, overcoming objections. And even the phrase overcoming suggests a certain kind of bullying, a certain steamrollering. And actually, if you look to improvisational theater, that offers a far more elegant and more effective approach to responding when things don't go your way. Um, what's very interesting about the history of sales is that so much of it was scripted. In the early days, they started creating these sales scripts, and so people's job as a salesperson was to memorize these scripts and recite them. They even had stage directions telling you, point here, point there at certain points. Um, those scripts matter less today, and improv matters more. And if you, if you, I ended up taking some improv classes that are designed for business people, and what this, these courses taught me are the three principles of improvisational theater that are very effective in persuasion and influence and selling. Uh, one of them, as you, as you mentioned, is to, it's central, is to say yes and. Uh, when you say yes but, that can create a downward spiral in your ability to fashion a solution. So let's say that you and I were planning a high school reunion. And, and, and I said, let's, let's, uh, we should have our high school reunion in um, uh, Miami. And you res it, it, see what happens. We can try this now. If you respond 
uh, yes, but um, to everything that I say. So let's have a high school reunion in Miami. Isn't that a great idea, Michael? Yes, but it's, uh, Miami's uh, not going to appeal to a lot of people. Yes, but some people could um, actually really like uh, being there, and we should really have the high school reunion where people want to be. Yes, but the, the, ho- the really good hotels there are just way too expensive. Yes, but um, maybe we can get a discount there. And besides, if um, people can't afford it, you know, that's fine. Okay, our guest has been Daniel Pink. Thank you for joining <laughs> us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so the idea is that you end up in this kind of downward cycle where you say yes and. So if you were to say to me, um, if you were to say to me, uh, those hotels are really expensive, I, would, I could say yes. And so let's see if we can uh, get a volume discount. And it ends up being, yes, and ends up being bigger. You don't negate things. You accept it, and then you build on it. The other thing that's very important in improv is the principle of hearing offers. Um, improv artists uh, think of every line as an offer because you, you, you don't know what's going, you don't know what's going to happen next. It's not scripted. And so in every line is an offer. I think that's a very ingenious way to think about conversations with people when you're trying to move to a common solution. And the third principle, along with saying yes and rather than yes but or no but um, and um, hearing offers, is the principle of making your partner look good. Improv artists, that's their job, is to make their partner look good. And a lot of times, going back to your point about the language, we have this very kind of zero-sum language of win or lose. You reel somebody in. You're, they, they are the hunted. You are the hunter. And improv is about making your partner look good. So anything you can do to make somebody look good ends up being more persuasive. So language is important. Uh, Something else is important. Just want to let people know you're listening to CNN Profiles with author Daniel Pink, author of To Sell is Human. The importance of language is crucial, but I also was reminded by you in this book that the importance of silence. You had this one exercise in the book where you said, try remaining silent after somebody finishes a statement for 15 seconds and I tell you it felt like an eternity why is that important that skill and what what's the use of silence before you respond how does that help you as a seller well I, I won't wait 15 seconds to answer that question uh, because it is excruciating this is an exercise that was actually in an improv class that was teaching you to listen um, really to listen a lot of people particularly People like you and me who have a Y chromosome think that the opposite of, uh, the opposite of talking is waiting. Uh, and so we too often just jump right in. And what some of the improv courses teach you is this very painful extended waiting before you respond to really understand what's going on. I think it's a more practical thing to actually wait five seconds to respond in certain circumstances, just as kind of a training exercise, not in every case. The reason for that is that one of the most important skills, one of the most important qualities in this new world of sales is the quality of attunement, of understanding someone's perspective, of seeing the world through their point of view. And in order to do that, one has to genuinely listen. Not wait, but genuinely listen. And that small gap, that five-second little space, can be really powerful in making sure that you've actually listened and absorbed. This goes to another really interesting point. Um, this point about listening is so profoundly important. It goes to, an, I think, another interesting uh, finding in the social science that, that I've written about um, on extroverts and introverts. Now, introverts are quiet, extroverts are, are loud, and we, what the conventional view is that extroverts make the best salespeople. And the evidence shows that extroverts are more likely to get hired 
as salespeople, they're more likely to get promoted as salespeople. We have this idea that to be in sales of any variety, you have to be the gregarious, backslapping kind of guy or gal. Well, um, Adam Grant at the University of Pennsylvania has recently completed some really fascinating research um, questioning this. What the, what the existing evidence shows is that while extroverts are more likely to get hired and promoted in sales jobs, the link between extroversion and sales performance, that is how often the cash register rings, is pretty much zero. And so he, he did this fascinating study of software salesmen, uh, most of them men, uh, of software sales reps, and what he did is he measured their, on a, the kind of assessment that many of us take at work, that measures your introversion, extroversion on a one to seven scale, one being extremely introverted, seven being extremely extroverted. And then he followed their sales performance over the next three months. And it turned out that introverts didn't do very well at sales. They, they averaged um, hourly revenue of $120 an hour. But the extroverts didn't do that that much better. They averaged in uh, hourly revenue of $125. So they did better than the introverts, but not that much better. But what was more interesting is that both of those groups lagged far behind a third group, and that group was the ambiverts. The ambiverts. Ambiversion, ambiverts is a term that came up in 1927, reached some prominence in 1970, describes people who are somewhat extroverted, somewhat introverted. Now, if you look at this data, it's quite fascinating. The sixes and sevens, the very strong extroverts, they're not very good salespeople because they don't listen. They talk too much, they interrupt, they bowl people over with their personality. But the answer isn't to be, isn't at the other end of the spectrum, to be a one or two. Strong introverts are terrible salespeople. They're too quiet, they're too timid, they don't assert. The people who really flourish are the people in the middle. Not the ones and twos strong introverts and not the sixes and sevens strong extroverts, but the threes, fours, and fives, the ambiverts, the people in, um, in the middle. And the reason for that is that they are attuned. They know when to speak up, but they also know when to shut up. They know when to push, but they also know when to hold back. And that kind of calibrated approach is really what the evidence is telling us that makes someone influential, persuasive, convincing in all of these kinds of settings. So as I listen to you, I think getting this out of your book, the ultimate ambivert physical gesture is the following. You tell me if I'm right. Okay. Touching somebody on the shoulder or the forearm. There was a study that really left an impression. Tell us about that and why, in some cases, what some people might consider creepy, that touch on the shoulder or the forearm, actually helps you sell. You know what? It's, um, it's quite remarkable, and I agree with you, Michael. That I, I found it a little bit creepy, but what it, what it shows is, again, it's part of this idea of attunement, that, that human beings, that when we connect with, e with each other, when we have affinity with, e with each other, some of it, it actually is physical. So uh, there's studies showing that a light, non-intrusive touch, on, as you say, on the shoulder, on the forehand, can lead for servers and restaurants to greater tips. There's some interest uh, in, in retail settings to um, people buying more. Uh, there's some evidence out of France, of course, that, um, that a man asking a woman for her phone number is more likely to get it with a light, again, we're talking a light touch. Uh, now there's some cultural challenges there in certain kinds of, in certain kinds of places, but that, um, that physical touch, light, uh, affinity-oriented, uh, ends up being quite 
uh, quite persuasive, that there is, in this idea of attunement, of, which is understanding someone's perspective, there is actually a physical component of it. This is, what, this is why you see in a lot of really fascinating evidence in the social science about uh, mimicking people's behavior, gentle, slight mimicking of people's behavior, which human beings do naturally. Go to a shopping mall or a busy city center and watch two people or three people who like each other. Um, it's almost like watching, you know, I remember as a kid watching Marlon Perkins' um, uh, Wild Kingdom about, you know, wildebeests and look at the weird behavior of wildebeests. You watch the, these people from afar, they have very similar gestures, very similar postures, uh, very similar even length of speech in many cases because that's how we understand somebody else. We show our affinity with them through mimicry. Um, and there's some fascinating research. We're putting people in negotiation situations. And people who are instructed to subtly mimic the uh, mannerisms of their counterparts in the negotiating table end up producing results better for both sides. Uh, there's some evidence out of in, uh, in waiters and waitresses where a waiter or waitress who repeats your order back to you exactly. I want a cheeseburger with extra tomato and mayo on the side. And your service says, okay, you want a cheeseburger with extra tomato and mayo on the side. That those servers get larger tips because they've, they've, they've shown that they uh, have some kind of affinity with you, they're attuned to your point of view. All right, so now what I want to do is I want to harness all this wisdom that, that you've collected and synthesized and aim it at my most important customers. Are you a parent? I am. I've, we, my wife and I have three children. So do I. So do we. And uh, they, I don't know how you view your children. They're my most important and my toughest customers. <laughs> Same with you? <laughs> Absolutely. So how can we, I'm going to make sure my kids don't hear this show. I usually share my, these shows with them. But how can we craft a sales approach that will get our kids to listen the first time? How can we better move them? Yeah, well, we have to recognize, first of all, that not everybody moves the first time, that one of the most important qualities is the quality of resilience and persistence and what, you know, what I call buoyancy. Um, so, um, in fact, very few people are moved the very first time. Uh, this, is why it's, this is why the, quality, the, the ability to pitch well is important, because pitches don't convince people. They invite you into a conversation. So, so, so I think my starting point is lower your expectations about being convincing and out of the box. Um, there are a couple of things that you can go to the, uh, let's go back to attunement, which is, you know, again, so profoundly important is to try to see the world through their point of view. There's some very interesting evidence showing that uh, when people feel powerful, they're less likely to take someone's perspective. And there is, can be very often a power imbalance, not necessarily a bad thing, but a power imbalance between parents and, and kids, uh, particularly younger kids. And so research shows, in, in short, that there's an inverse relationship between power and perspective taking. The more powerful you feel, the less you're likely to take someone else's perspective. So you can go into your encounters with your kids and say, you know what, I'm not necessarily the most powerful one here. I'm not necessarily the, you know, the ultimate command and control authority figure. That can help you see things through, through their perspective. One of the things, one of the techniques that works extremely well with kids, which is a technique from uh, a field called motivational interviewing, which is in some ways a therapeutic technique, um, is to, and the broader principle is people are more likely to move if they summon their own reasons for doing something. So a great example of that would, in, from motivational interviewing would be, let's say you want your kid to, um, 
let's say you're taking a long car ride. I'll give you this example. Taking a long car ride, and you got a kid who's a little bit rambunctious, and you want the kid just to like not go crazy in the car during the entire car ride. Um, and so you could try to bribe the kid. I'll, if you don't act like an animal, you can have an ice cream cone, or you can threaten the kid. I'm going to stop this car right now and leave you by the side of the road. Um, but all of those are very controlling forms of persuasion. Uh, what motivational interviewing tells us is a very different and very sophisticated technique, which is this. Let's say you've got a kid um, who you, you suspect isn't going to be that well-behaved during this long car ride. You can say to this kid, um, Joe, I'll call him Joe, <laughs> Joe, um, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 meaning not at all, 10 meaning absolutely on board, um, how ready are you, how willing are you to behave well on this car trip? Okay. And so you ask Joe that question. And let's say that Joe says, I don't know, pick a number. Say, say Joe says three, okay? Joe says three. Your follow-up question is, okay, why isn't it a two? Now, this is the surprising question. Why isn't it a two? And th then Joe has to actually explain why it's a three and not a two. And he'll say, well, I know it's distracting when you drive around and we're screaming. Um, I know it's not that fun for my sister for me to pound on her. Uh, the entire car ride. I know it's actually a little bit more fun for me when I'm actually absorbed in something when we can all listen to a book. And this kind of technique ends up, uh, which is really important and, and extraordinary and very ethical and actually a good learning exercise, builds persuasion by getting the person you're trying to persuade to summon his or her own reasons for moving. I'm, gonna, I'm going to apply those principles. So, so let's just take one more case study on the, on the parenting front because this is yeah. great. I'm going to try this immediately. Uh, let's say, for example, you want your kid to practice his or her instrument, uh, yeah. musical instrument, uh, more regularly. Um, yeah. how, how would you go about doing that if, if they don't seem to have buy-in? They think a half hour a week is enough, and you think five hours a week is a good amount of time. Yeah, you know, that's a really hard one. And because, I mean, it go, it's actually, in some ways, it's more complicated than that, than that because that's, that's about it's more complicated than the, the individual isolated, time-bounded behavior of a car trip. That's more about someone's approach to, to dealing with, with the world. And I, I don't want to say there's a, there, there isn't an easy answer on that. I think particularly for those, you can, you can try this technique of motivational interviewing of, you know, on a scale of, I mean, you can try the same thing at, at a broader level. At, at a, on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, how ready or willing are you to practice five hours a week? And let's say that he or she says, you know, three or what, you know, four. You can say, why isn't it lower? And they can begin summoning their own reasons for practicing five hours, five hours a week. I think for that, uh, for those kinds of things, for, for, for practice and for uh, grit, so much of it has to come from within. That it isn't the kind of thing where we can, you know, motiv you know, manipulate people in that way. We have to look for ways for them to motivate themselves. And motivational interviewing is one technique for doing that. The other, the other thing is, with 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 kids, and I'm sort of going beyond the boundaries of the book here, is how important it is to see what their parents do. So if you are doing something, if you're playing, want to get better at tennis, or you want to get better at oil painting and you're not practicing five hours a week, then you've got an uphill battle. So if the more we can be good role models, number one, and the more we can look for ways for kids to summon their own reasons for doing something, the more the behavior is likely to stick and sustain over, uh, over a long haul. And like anything, like playing that instrument, uh, practicing it makes you better. 
Daniel Pink, author of To Sell Us Human, thank you so much for joining us at CNN Profiles. Michael, it's been a true pleasure. By the way, you can find CNN Profiles on our website, cnn.com soundwaves, or download us from iTunes, or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Share.